Thanks for listening to Julie Goodnight's Horse Master Academy podcast, presented by Smooth Stride Riding Jeans. We'll take on a new horse training or horse care topic in every episode. Thanks for listening and enjoy the ride. I'm Heidi Malacco. I'm here with Julie Goodnight. And Julie, today we're going to talk about our behavior series more. And this one is well-behaved communicative postures. Your horse communicates and responds to changes in posture. And we know that how a horse moves, the level of its head, the direction he looks, maybe if he tucks his tail, all of those things have meaning. Tell me a little bit about postures and why horses are so adept at noticing these changes. Sure. Well, basically, horses have an extensive language, and there's three different ways to communicate. Uh, there's some audible communication, whinnies and knickers, that's uh, a minimal amount of their communication. The primary modes of communicating are postures and gestures. And just as I said that, I was glancing out at my little herd of horses, and of the six horses, uh, four of them just lifted their heads and looked off to the north. And um, <laughs> so uh, that's, um, so the postures and gestures um, really make up the bulk of a horse's communicative behavior, um, how they communicate with each other and um, how they uh, notice their environment. And so postures alone are constantly changing in horses and shifting and either communicating something specific to another horse, like aggression or warning another horse, I, I think there's something threatening or showing that they have no, in, that they're submissive or subordinate or relaxed or whatever. So these, these postures are constantly happening with horses, whether we know it or not. I love that example of looking out. Tell me a little bit more about the posture. So if only some of them look up, then does somebody put their head back down to signal that it's not something to be concerned about? Or how did they continue to communicate? As I was just looking at, at my group of horses, all six of them were clustered around one feeder. They have 24-7 access to hay and, and more than one feeder, but they're all standing around one. And, and Three of them lifted their head abruptly almost at the same time. Really, one went first and the other two followed. But the leader of the herd never lifted his head up out of the feeder. Huh. So after about three seconds, they all put their heads back down and totally relaxed. And that, you know, is basically what, what went on there is their leader didn't show any alarms. So they said, false alarm, never mind, let's go back to normal. So this kind of stuff is happening all the time. Tell me about the most important or the most obvious gestures and postures that you see in a herd. I think the number one most obvious is the level of the head. So anytime the head is going up, the horse is tensing. Anytime the head is going down, the horse is relaxing. Um, I should say almost always when the head is going down, the horse is relaxing. There are some gestures that involve lowering the head. Um, but just in terms of lifting and, and lowering the head, um, it's like a needle on a gauge. Up is, is the horse is mm -hmm. tensing, down the horse is relaxing. So this is always gives you a barometer for the mental state of the horse. And also when the horse's head is most alarmed or most aggressive or most prepared for flight, the head is all the way up. And when the horse is at his most relaxed and most submissive, um, the, the head is all the way down to the ground. And that's coincidentally when they eat and drink. So a horse only eats and drinks in a very relaxed state. Any tension at all, they stop eating and drinking. So, mm -hmm. 
so those just the elevation of the head is a, is a huge barometer. I'm I'm aware of it 100% of the time I'm around a horse or riding a horse because it always tells me more information about what the horse is thinking, and um, and we look for that. And then also because the signs of dominance and subordination, I should say the signs of subordination are synonymous with the signs of relaxation. So as the horse lowers his head, he's also coming into a sub more submissive state. And the gesture of the head drop or the head bob is actually a gesture of submission or contrition. And when might you see that in a, a larger herd? Lots of times. So if a more dominant horse gets irritated with a, another horse and they sort of lash out at him, maybe bar their teeth and uh, pin their ears and gesture, snake at him a little bit, you might see that subordinate horse drop his head down in a gesture and a bob that says, oh, I'm so sorry, I didn't mean to make you mad. Please leave me alone. I'll go away right. now, thanks. As we work horses in the round pen, of course, that's a sign we're looking for. We're, we're looking for the overall posture of the horse to change from tense and alarmed to relaxed and accepting. And we're looking for those gestures of the head drop to indicate the horse is, is accepting our authority. So um, it's constant. It never, it never changes. As I'm riding my horse, the highest level horse, I know if his head comes up at all, it's because he's unsure of what I'm doing. And if he's mm -hmm. unsure of what I'm doing, I'm not doing it right. So, uh, so that's my bad. So I gotta. Uh, so I don't. I'm not actively consciously thinking about it. For me, it's more of a subconscious thought. But I, I, I notice it 100% of the time because it's meaningful. Mm hmm. Okay, so we've got head up. We know what that means, alarm, or not understanding what's going on, and head down and in the herd and with the round pin. What are some other maybe things that people don't notice as often but maybe need to pay attention to? Tail position is a big one. And the same rules apply to the tail, basically, that we talked about the head. So. Um, as the tail comes up, the horse is tensing. As the tail comes down, the horse is relaxing. Um, but there are some other meaningful positions of the tail. You know, of course, there are gestures with the tail, like the swishing of the tail, indicate irritation. And um, there is a tail position where the bottom of the tail, the tail is stiff but down, but the bottom of the tail is poking out behind the horse it all, uh -huh. and almost the bottom of the tail bone is almost protruding through the ha tail hairs. Um, and that's a really important tail position because it indicates ambivalence in the horse. And ambivalence is, I, I'm not sure how I feel right now. I don't know if I'm mad right. or scared. You know, I, um, And so there's nothing you can do to change it or there's no action you're going to, you know, your actions aren't going to change as a result probably. But it's really good that to be aware of, okay, my horse is in a transitional phase of emotions right now, and I want to shift him towards the emotion I want him to have. So I'm going to maybe be a little more careful and be looking more closely for those signs that indicate his, his acceptance and his, his willingness um, or his focus on me. So if you saw that as you're working with the horse, maybe it would be more in a round pin situation if he was transitioning to some new activity or learning something new? Yeah, yeah, sure. 
or a, you know may, maybe when you're riding more a younger greener horse or a horse that had, okay. had learned bad things um, and you were trying to <laughs> relearn some good things <laughs> needs to relearn something that that cue doesn't mean something terrible is going to happen Okay. Yeah. Well, you mentioned that there were some gestures with the head down that meant something else. What might those be? Well, there is an aggressive move of the horse where the head comes down. It's called snaking. And it's a herding behavior. It's a dominant behavior. And so you, you, if you've watched groups of horses at all, then probably you've seen it. And the, the horse lowers his head, but he sticks his nose out, and there's all kinds of other clues, gestures, and body postures that would indicate this horse is dominant and aggressive, not relaxed and submissive. So uh, even though they both involve lowering the head, the, the horses overall look quite, quite different. So snaking, the horse lowers the head and he sticks his nose out, generally bars his teeth. So anytime the horse shows his teeth, he's, he's getting in a little threatening aggressive mode um, and he'll and the reason why it's called snaking is because he'll snake out his nose in a herding gesture when he's chasing a horse away um, mm -hmm. or sometimes uh, the dominant horse is just um, they're just jerking that horse around they just want to chase him around a little bit so that to remind that horse that um, he's lower down the totem pole so mm -hmm. um, you might see it uh, when you're riding or working. Uh, sometimes horses will snake at the rider, uh, at the foot of the rider. So people say, "Why is that horse? He's trying to. He's biting my stirrup." You know, uh -huh. um, that's a horse that's generally not real happy with uh, the rider and uh, is is sort of uh, it's a dominant. It's a dominant maneuver, so I would be a little concerned about that. So uh, just the, the horse turning his head back and kind of nosing at your foot in the stirrup, is that what you're talking about? Well, no, I would say that might be the beginning thought of it, but okay. um, have you ever had a horse kind of reach around and bite the stirrup? Uh, okay. More like that. So just okay. that. It's basically that same behavior, but a little bit more aggressive. Aggressive, so right. I, you know. So I would discourage any time your horse starts reaching around towards your foot like that. Um, certainly not a, a not a great idea. I would condone. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> what about ear position? Do those the ear movements have to do with other postures, or do you consider ear postures on their own? Yes and no. You always sort of have to look at the big picture. The ears can tell us the focus of the horse, whether he's focused ahead or behind or in two directions or um, the the subordinate ear position is relaxed ears in the east-west position. As the ears come back a little bit intense, that's just show, that generally is going to, you're going to see an overall body posture mm -hmm. of the horse tensing from nose to tail. Um, of course, flat back indicates either extreme ir irritation or aggression or anger. But what you're saying about ears. snaking, I'm sure that their ears pinned when that's happening too, or it might be a, a yep. subphase of another posture. Yeah, they're almost always mm -hmm. going to have their ears pinned um, or at least back, back intense.
Good. Now, are there have we missed any postures that people need to be aware of when they're near their horse? So he's got head up, head down, tail, ears, snaking. Is there anything else you'd want to add to that list? Um, well, just in terms of posture, I think those are the main main things we're looking at. The overall frame of the horse, and and um, and 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 then those specific things. Good. Now, I know we talk about postures, and we talk about human posture, of course, and trying to have good posture. But I know with the whole natural horsemanship movement and how you talk about working in the round pen, your posture can give the cue to the horse, and even though we're built very differently, how we position ourselves can communicate with the horse. What happens if your head is up versus down, imagining working in a round pen? How does the horse relate to your positioning? He relates to it exactly as he does relate to it with other horses, so he can't, he can't disregard it. So horses are so tuned in to posture and gestures that uh, of the horses that constantly surround them, that they're the exact same thing way with you. And so, um, and I, and you know, uh, it's unfortunate that um, when you, you know, when you're first getting going with horses, there's so much to learn and take in. You certainly don't have the capacity to be thinking about your own posture right. and, you know, all that, but the horse is, and, and, and of course, you know, our, our bless, God bless the beginner school horses, because they just learn to sort of go on about their job, no matter what the person does. But a, the, the less trained or fresher or more raw the horse is, the more, um, the more your body language and postures and actions are going to affect the horse. So, um, and I want to use that in, in my, so I want to use that to my advantage. So it, there are times when I want to display a very dominant and maybe even aggressive mm -hmm. um, stance with the horse. Um, there are times, like say, when I'm trying to catch a skittish horse that I want to show a very non-threatening, um, low pressure, posture to the horse and hoping that he will stay there. <laughs> and so and, that might be uh, rounding your shoulders or, or what would that sure. non-aggressive be? It, it would be more than just rounding my shoulders. It would be rounding my shoulders, opening my shoulders away from the horse, mm -hmm. um, glancing my eyes and head away from the horse so I take that visual pressure off him. It would be um, almost uh, making myself look smaller and even even to the point of dragging my toes um, hmm. through the sand uh, in a real slow way, almost, almost kind of like you're a little bit of a zombie or something. And versus, let's say I'm in the round pen with a, um, a, a little dominant cocky horse and um, we're just at that first stage where I'm pushing him around the round pen you know, that horse, I'm going to be staring him straight in the eyes. I'm going to have my shoulders um, straight towards his, his eyes, and I'm going to be very erect. I'm going to be mm -hmm. marching instead of, um, you know, dragging my toes in the, in the sand. So that's kind of two ends of the extreme there, but, you know, you, you should be constantly. The horse is, is constantly looking for that communication. So the better you are at providing it, the more the horse learns to trust you, first of all, because he's like, okay, well, 
well, she said she was going to do that. Right. And she did it, you know. Right. And um, so, so yeah, so just like the horse is constantly aware of it and constantly exhibiting these behaviors, so should we. That makes a lot of sense. Their, if their first language is to tune into those things, then that's what we need to be aware of. But like you said, I think that's the hardest part. If you're trying to learn everything else, then self-awareness <laughs> comes a little bit later. Good. I think that's really good. That, that makes a lot of sense of how the horse interacts. We've got head up, head down, tail tucked, snaking, ears, and how those relate to you as well as what we can do to make sure we're communicating that same way. Yep. Good. All right, Julie, thank you so much. Thank you. I'm Heidi Malacco. I am here today with Desiree Johnson, the owner and designer of Smooth Stride Riding Jeans. And Desiree, you have a pretty interesting story being a rider of why you wanted to create the perfect jeans for people to ride in and why there was such a need for something that felt good in the saddle. Tell me a little bit about how you got started. Well, hello, Heidi. Thank you for calling. Yes, I do. Um, this all started uh, a few years before we bought the company. Um, I was uh, very lucky to have been able to have my own stable. Um, right. I had three stalls and I uh, had a few event horses in training and my own ring, and I was teaching, and because I'm an event rider, okay. doing a lot of uh, a lot of setting up jumps and grooming the ring and, you know, the PP&D, the poop pick up and drag, and uh, all, all the manual labor that goes along with uh, four acres of mowing and uh, gardening and all of that, being a wife and the shopping. And, and I was in my tack room one day, and uh, the, I was taking my breeches and boots off yet once again. Right. And I thought to myself, uh, there's got to be a jean out there. I need some blue jeans that I can also ride in. Right. Because I do so much teaching. I jump up on a horse for 10 minutes. Then I jump down and I have to set up jumps, and the the you know the bridges just get get thrashed. They're too nice to work in. I mean to really really work in. So I went to my local ranching home. Now remember, I'm an English rider, so I went right. to a, a store specialty in Western, 20 different styles of Western blue jeans, and I asked the lady. I told her I said I want your top of the line Western riding jean. Not going to say the name of it because I don't want to smash anything. Sure, sure. She took me to the top of the line, and I looked at them, and I looked at the seat area, and I saw that lump, your best riding jean. She said, yes. And I said, well, these aren't riding jeans. And she looked at me. She kind of blinked. And I said, there's this lump in the crotch seat area, and that's the whole reason why I'm here is because I can't ride in country western dancing jeans. I need a riding jean. And she said, well, this is, this is it. And so I, you know, I went home and I told Eric, I said, you know what, I'm going to start my own business. It's going to be called Designs by Desiree. And I told him my story. And what I did is I went online. And at that time, I didn't find anything like what it was that I wanted, but I did find a pattern, a buttery pattern. So I ended up, to make a, a long story short, I made three pairs of these little sweatpants that were, you know, one seamless inside, right. came up the front and the back, and they were basically little sweatpants with little knee pads. And I wore those little jeans. I, wore, I made a corduroy pair of winter and a lightweight jean material for summer. I wore them out <laughs> two years or so, wore them holes, holes. And what I loved about them is they were short, 
you know, right up to the ankle. I could stick them in my English boots, and then I would take my boots off. I could work in these little jeans pants all day long, and I could go grocery shopping, and I could get down in the dirt and garden and do the mowing and move my jumps. So finally they, they wore out, and it was around Thanksgiving time, and uh, I said to Eric, I said, there's got to be somebody who has thought of this idea. I can't be the only one. So I sat down with Mimosa at the holiday time, and I found Smooth Stride Riding Gene Company. And the mission statement and the explanation was exactly what I was looking for. And they were interested in selling the company, and Eric and I had a powwow, and we said, let's do it. And this thing that we were, we didn't know anything about the manufacturing clothing business, nothing. I know, it was really, the learning curve was incredible. The inventory that we bought, that we thought we were going to be able to buy, was all messed up. It wasn't graded Mm. properly and didn't fit anybody. So we basically started from scratch. I redesigned this incredible already existing jean that had the seamless inside and was a boot cut. And I made it, I I recreated the whole, uh, basically the waist, contoured waistband, the Grading is correct. The rise is correct for riders, for mature riders, not teenagers with, you know, that weigh 115 pounds. Mm-hmm. They're designed for women who have either had kids or not, but have lived with their bodies, and, you know, for, for mature women. Have the curves that they are supposed to have once they have reached adulthood. <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> now, tell me, what do you mean by the grade? Is that the way that the shape changes up around your waist? Well, for instance, when we got the inventory, I had these tiny little rises and huge legs. So the legs didn't match. So the lower part didn't match the upper part. So if you have a size 10 jean, it is graded size 10 the whole length of the jean. And that's, uh, it's a, there's a science to it. And okay. so our jeans are, you know, we hired, literally hired a specialist to grade the patterns correctly. Okay. Yeah, there's a lot of math. (laughs) You've learned lots of terminology about this. And and so the big thing about these that makes them for riding, what would you say are your your top features that make them for riders, not just for wearing on the street? But you could do both. Yes, you could. The main thing is that cross lump in the seat area has been removed. Literally, they're they're just like uh, how they build English riding breeches only, uh, their western boot cut. Second thing would be the rise in the back. It's hard to find a blue jean out there that calls itself a riding jean that has a a correct um, rise. The contoured waistband, so it's just not a straight piece. It's also curved to shape a fit women's curve. And the stretch, it's a perfect amount of stretch. We have a special process that they don't bag out, so we've eliminated the bag out problem. So this gene that you buy will be the same size within eight hours or two days or three days. They don't, you just don't put them in the washing machine and they snap back and then bag out again. So if they don't fit, that probably means that you gained a little weight. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I'm imagining what this means when you're actually on a day-long trail rider, like with you with endurance riding, I grew up riding Western. We always rode in jeans. And I remember on longer days, like the inside of your leg, it'd be a little chaff. But that's just what you had. And I think it, it's interesting to hear you say with that English or endurance perspective, 
everything you're thinking of has to do with how can I wear this all day, be comfortable, and make it through the miles, right? Sure. Literally, there are some of us that we get in the saddle after 10 minutes. I was not comfortable. Right. So this, it's also for instructors, for instance, who just get on, who are teaching all day long. They need a safe place for their phone for emergencies because we have a beautiful old, you know, classic welt pocket on the top of the right side that mm-hmm. is, uh, doesn't have any closure to break or anything, and it's fits in snugly so it's not going to flop around. So even for instructors who have to get on a horse and just demonstrate something for 10 minutes and get back off again. Right, and feel comfortable in what you're getting down. Because I know when I have ridden English and you're in your breeches and sometimes you're like, whoosh, should I not, I I don't mind riding these in the saddle, but I definitely don't want to go in public in them. So I think that's a, a great aspect too, something you can be comfortable in, but you can get on and off and still do whatever you need to do. Sure. Yeah, I I was joking in another interview I did that you could be a lawyer with a blazer in an office and then you could go straight to the barn and you wouldn't have to change your pants all day long. And thinking about the rider, not somebody that's coming from the fashion world and how to make those look good at the barn, which they look good. All the jeans can look good, but mm-hmm. how can you find something that's going to keep you comfortable in the saddle, not have that big seam on the inside right where you're trying to have contact and right. communicate with your horse with your leg position. Feel good no matter what you're doing. I spend so much money on equipment for our horse. And so I really feel like this is a, a very valuable piece of equipment for for riders finally. Good. Well, thank you for taking this on and figuring out something that's going to be good for a lot of riders. Thank you, Heidi. Thanks for listening to Julie Goodnight's Horse Master Academy podcast, presented by Smooth Stride Riding Jeans. Check out SmoothStride.com and find them on Facebook to thank them for making this podcast possible. Also, be sure to visit JulieGoodnight.com slash podcasts for the full library of audio interviews you can listen to in the car or at the barn. 